Hello and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host Annabelle Collins and this week I'm joined by Ben Clover and James Illman. NHS England is ploughing ahead with plans to scrap the four-hour emergency treatment target in A&E departments. Last week it confirmed 10 new metrics would replace the target pending government sign-off. We'll have more on this from James who has been following the consultation on the four-hour target for many many months. We'll also be discussing a piece published on HSJ this week, written by NHS Chief Executive Yvonne Ormston. She weaves together her COVID experience as a leader and as a cancer patient during the pandemic. And we'll be discussing her sharp observations on the COVID response and how they are perhaps in contrast to Dominic Cummings' testimony last week. But first, we'll start with the A&E target. James, I'm going to bring you in. As I said, you've been following this, the will they, won't they, on the scrapping of the four-hour target for quite a while. After the latest announcement, do you think we're any clearer as what will replace this landmark target? A little bit, yeah. So, I mean, just to go back a little bit, the four-hour target uh, has been around for since the noughties. And uh, in 2018, Theresa May announced Theresa May was Prime Minister. Um, It all feels like a very long time ago that there was going to be this big review of clinical standards uh, of the NHS's targets. The one, one of the ones in the kind of first wave of changes was the four hour targets. Um, And I thought it was interesting that on a day when one bombshell story is guaranteed to dominate the media agenda, it's always interesting to know what else gets sort of sneaked out. And late on the afternoon of Dominic Cummings's marathon appearance in front of MPs last Wednesday was the time that uh, NHS England deemed to be right to announce that following a consultation, they were forging ahead with a long-held plan to replace the NHS's four-hour targets with a new set of 10 metrics. Um, The story was predictably pushed down the running order of national media outlets who on less exceptional days would have certainly have um, paid more attention to um, the NHS uh, ditching what what is its its main performance metric. And the need for such an approach on this announcement appeared at first glance to be quite puzzling because the desire to move away from the totemic four-hour target to a more nuanced regime had the backing of the Academy of Royal Colleges, uh, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, uh, patient groups, including the Patient Association. So, you know, why why did um, why did NHS England, if if they did choose to bury it, if it wasn't just jolly unfortunate timing, uh, bury it? Um, And um, I think there could be a couple of reasons for this. And um, first of all, just briefly on this new bundle, as Annabelle said, 10 metrics. um, And there's a lot of sensible new targets in there. There's going to be a percentage of ambulance handovers from ambulance to A&E within 15 minutes. There's going to be time to initial assessment. Um, That's going to be a percentage seen within 15 minutes. average time spent in uh, the department so and it's going to give us a clearer picture of what's going on not just uh, in emergency departments but not just even across whole hospitals but across whole systems as well so there's there's a lot of 
um, uh, good reasons, firstly, to replace the four-hour target, and secondly, to bring in uh, this more nuanced approach, um, certainly on clinical grounds anyway. But um, what there hasn't been a plan yet, uh, or, or certainly not one that's been made public, is how these metrics are going to be used um, to hold uh, organisations and the system as a whole accountable for its performance, you know, how it's going to be used as a performance metric, which um, the, 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 the four hour target has, has done the job of for a very long time. So, um, yeah, that, that, that is, you know, I, I think without a plan for how this basket is going to be used um, in that way, the job really does feel kind of half done at the moment, mm. um, if that. And of course, the likes of NHS providers, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, the patient groups are saying, well, we know that, but this will be worked out in due course. But it's a really complicated part of the job. And when previous attempts to do this kind of work have been done, uh, this has been a big stumbling block for them. And, you know, they've often been hived off as put in a too difficult box. So. I was kind of surprised that NHS England managed to get such wide sort of almost unconditional sign up from so many uh, interested parties when when it hasn't sorted out this, this kind of glaring issue. Um, as you also mentioned in the uh, your intro, the government hasn't given it the OK yet. The kind of general mood music for almost two years now has been that the Department of Health is uh, very much behind it. Matt Hancock has has, has been a, you know, he, he sees himself very much as a reformer um, and, and this would be reform. Um, but the Treasury are normally like, OK, well, if we're going to give you money, we want strings attached to that money. So, so how are we going to hold you accountable? And that's been where the sort of more um, forensic questioning has been done and I don't know that we're past that yet. And obviously it's going to have to get sign off from number 10 as well. Um, so still a way to go, uh, but it does feel like a, um, a uh, when rather than an if. Um, yeah, so I think that that's that's where we're up to as far as we know so far. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know whether you've had any conversations with um, clinicians about this at all, because to me, and obviously I'm not, you know, I'm not working in an A&E department, I'm not a chief operating officer, but 10 metrics seems like a really un, unwieldy <laughs> way to, to measure yeah. performance. I'm just wondering how, what's the response been to that? Is there a sense of, well, how is this going to work in real life? I think there's a lot of chief operating officers who are scratching their heads and saying, the performance part of our board papers is already like a Bible. Uh, what's it going to look like once we've got 10 new metrics instead of just one? Um, in, in terms of clinicians, there's very mixed views, especially in the emergency medicine community. A lot of people do see the four hour target as still serving um, a purpose as, as, as a patient safety uh, measure as well as a performance measure. Um, but then there's a lot of people who think it's, it, it skews um, a lot of the way hospitals behave and, um, you know, good riddance, really. So it, it, it's a very kind of wide 
um, wide church of opinion from those very in favour to those very against to a lot of people who are kind of like me, really. I, I, I sort of have always felt that the four hour target, scrapping it is a good idea as long as what you're going to replace it with is demonstrably better. Uh, and we just don't know that yet. There's always unintended consequences to these kind of tweaks and changes. And, you know, obviously, whatever happens, there are going to be unintended consequences. But we don't even really know the intended consequences at the, uh, at the moment, apart from, oh, you know, things will be safer clinically. Well, um, yeah, uh, that's that's not really um, enough as far as I'm concerned. And in terms of, yeah, a lot of uh, clinicians feel like the process has been going on um, behind closed doors. Yes, uh, various groups have been asked for their views, but there's been various trials going on. That data is kept very much under lock and key. Well, you know, if you're going to demonstrate that these new metrics are delivering better, safer care, well, show the data that shows it seems a fair a fair question um, they've not released, <laughs> they've, not not, released. They, they've, they've not they've published they've selectively published various parts of various bits of data but uh in terms of if you speak to people at the king's funds at the nuffield trust uh they will say well yeah we'd 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 like a good look through that data but um we can't get the whole people lot. who are really good at looking through data Those people. And seeing how stuff it Exactly. And so they've not I'm, seen it. No, um, which which all which all. Yeah, it, it, it just doesn't look good. Um, and even though there are, you know, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine had this kind of uh, change of, of heart on it. And, um, you know, there are there are a lot of good reasons to believe that uh, the move to these new targets will be a good thing clinically. But um, we don't really know until these vital questions have been are, are answered. So, um, yeah, a bit so up in the air. And, and just just to ask quickly about like the the kind of hospital politics of a thing. I'm sure I'm sure I've been told somewhere that uh, that one of the groups amongst whom the four hour target is unpopular are people who work in other bits of the hospital because. Um, having this central, easy to understand, hard to game, um, well, not that hard to game, um, target at the centre of hospital performance. And A&E was always like the most powerfully visible bit of the hospital system for the public anyway. But having that having that target there so clear and so obvious um, kind of skewed resources disproportionately to A&E and, and potentially made the whole system more A and E focused than perhaps it than perhaps it should be. Is that something that? Yeah, that's certainly uh, something that um, has uh, has been said. Certainly, the the, the Royal College of Surgeons uh, haven't um, uh, had much in the way of opposition to the um, uh, four hour target being replaced. And yeah, I think that it it will change the dynamics of hospital politics um but we don't know what to until we know at what kind of levels the different metrics are going to be set um and 
changing those politics could be no bad thing at all. But as as we say, until until we know what levels people are going to be expected to hit, um, then um, then yeah, it's very hard to know how that's going to play out. Also, yeah, one one thing that um, I should have said was comparing this year to last year uh, is a very important. Um, it's important to be able to have that kind of historical context of how the NHS is performing. And if you get rid of the four hour target um, and have a look, then, then, then how do we convert the new uh, world order back 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 to the old? I think that's that's something else which is could be particularly troublesome. It's going to be it's going to be very difficult isn't it, for staff. You kind of go if they're approached and told we are going to bust our collective guts to repair the historically very bad A&E performance at, say, just West London District General Hospital. And then, but we've changed the metrics. So there'll be no way of discerning your actual <laughs> effort as opposed to like, ah, this is just how the um, how the new metrics work. You know, you're not, people aren't gonna get the credit for their for their work on that. Yeah, and also right. kind of, and also if, if you haven't let the proper data people look at the system, probably you might also disguise kind of systemic dysfunction which is deeply dangerous kind of like because on, on a in the moment there is the 95 percent target and there's the 12 hour trolley rates trolley weights and that's about it really isn't it kind of i mean ambulance handovers kind of diverts but kind of but if you compare that to another one of like the big three performance measures cancer where there is like the 62 day one but there are also myriad kind of other measures that sit underneath it kind of I don't know what cancer people would say about how that how that kind of changes behavior because targets do change behavior they're supposed to oh, of course yeah. um but I, I don't know because also cancer is sort of a cancer services that you might want that sort of level of granularity because it can be a bit more complicated because there are lots of different pathways whereas A&E no one's saying that there isn't a variety of things that come into A&E but broadly being seen in time is is a key one and like and, and just kind of the fundamental like the economics of it underneath attendances have been going up for ages kind of not always matched by resources kind of you know there's, there's nothing that implies that's going to change particularly no um and that's a concern as well because what people were saying certainly at the beginning of the debate was whatever things look like uh under the new regime we we want it to be uh, at an equivalent of 95 percent on the four hour target of the old money so um i.e the fact the system isn't hitting 95 percent far from it is a bad thing and that needs improving and that means more resources needed rather than we change the measure and then suddenly the whole debate changes so yeah one one thing i would say um on in terms of I'm sure a lot of people will welcome the more kind of nuanced approach. And you spoke about the the the, the 12 hour trolley weights target. They're, they're changing that to a proper 12 hour target, which is the clock will start at the same point that the four hour clock would start rather than a decision to admit as yeah. it currently is, uh, which has been for years. People have said this is this is a yeah, it's just not. Uh, it's a very misleading target. So yeah, a lot of good um, can come out of this, but um, yeah, a significant question still unanswered.
because because the only problem it seems to solve that people say is that uh oh i am not all that serious a, a patient in A&E. i've been waiting three hours 57 i get seen before someone who's maybe more serious who's miles away from crossing that four hour threshold that's that that seems like that's the only real problem it solves like scrapping the target or or, or is there more um, I think, yeah, generally with, uh, in, in terms of clinical, a, a lot of uh, emergency clinicians would say, well, obviously we, we prioritise on clinical need anyway, or, or already. So, um, yeah, I think it, but as, as you say, there's a lot of different behaviours and there's a lot of, it's sort of, they, the idea of the new basket of metrics is, is that it will be seen more in the realm of, of how the system is performing, uh, and there won't be this sort of uh, focus solely on uh, for our performance within the A and E. It will be a lot wider than that. It will include, um, uh, yeah, pre-hospital targets, for example, like mm. reducing avoidable trips to the emergency department and proportion of contacts via NHS one 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 that received clinical input. Um, and then it will there's there's going to be sort of whole system metrics as well, like um, there's going to be new critical time standards which are aimed at ensuring that the highest priority patients uh, get care within a um, a uh, um, a set time frame. So I think it's about sort of broadening what the target is used for, what the um, standards are used for, and yeah, it is about moving this focus away from from one very dominant target. In terms of broadening what the standards are used for, James, there was quite an interesting question under the piece you wrote last week around provision for mental health presentations. And someone's a sort of, I know, sorry, this is probably a bit of a curveball question for you, but um, just wondering if, if you think there could be kind of um, the chance to broaden them, broaden them out um, to that extent. Um, I think the, the commenter said, oh, if there's, um, you know, if there's an extension of the target, uh, the headline metric to be stretched longer, it's important that mental health presentations are included from door to departure. I wonder if that's yeah, it's, it certainly is. So a lot of long waits in in A and E at the moment are often mental health patients, um, and I'm sure at some point we'll get Rebecca Thomas, our mental mm. health expert, to come and talk about the changes to the mental health targets there. But yeah, that's that's certainly going to be an important area that um, mm. the new targets need to address. And before we move on to our, our next topic, just finally, what's the what's the time frame looking like, James? What when can, when can we when can we expect to see any of this kind of phased in? I suppose I that's it's certainly going to be a phased approach. So mm. there's not going to be a big bang. Um, but until we know a bit more about until we know when the government's going to sign it off. I mean, originally uh, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine were were urging for the standards to have been brought in before last winter um, because this kind of there's this performance vacuum at the moment where um, everyone knows the four hour target is toast so uh, no one's sort of really using it in the rigid way that they were in the past but um, at the same time there's the new um, arrangements haven't come in yet so Royal College of Emergency Medicine are, are rightly very concerned about that and we're seeing already in May um, emergency departments get really, really busy. So um, I'm not sure on the timeline, 
uh, we'll have to see. The ball is kind of in the government's court at the moment, but it will certainly be a phased approach as it comes in. But certainly from the point of view of um, uh, NHS, you know, senior managers, clinicians and well, patients, really, every, every, everyone, this current sort of um, hiatus doesn't really do anyone any good. So hopefully decisions will be made sooner rather than later. Brilliant. And I would really encourage anyone who's interested in this to read James's piece from last week. It's a really good, a brilliant kind of summary of this really tricky kind of technical issue. Um, but that's great. Um, and now, um, as promised, we'll um, be moving on to talk about, well, it's sort of a, a leap into kind of the COVID recovery world, but a really thought provoking piece um, we published on our website this week. And as I said, it was written by an NHS chief executive in Gateshead, um, Yvonne Ormston. And it was it was kind of, in my mind, it was sort of a piece of two different halves. She talk, talked about her COVID experience as an NHS leader, how her trust prepared um, for the pandemic, um, kind of, you know, some of the really difficult decision, decisions she had to make. And then her experience after receiving a cancer diagnosis at the end of last year and um, some of her observations about kind of you know, what it's like to be a patient as well um, which is you know it's pretty it's pretty rare um, kind of experiencing um, both of the both sides um, and I think um, Ben you've been um, kind of thinking about some of the things um, kind of the issues raised in this piece um, and kind of how it touches on the kind of, um, I suppose, NHS recovery experience. Um, I wonder whether um, you had any reflections? Yeah, I thought it was a really uh, great piece. Uh, all of the all of the readers' um, comments uh, seem, seem to agree. Um, and I thought it was particularly interesting to contrast um, what Yvonne wrote with uh, Dominic Cummings' appearance from last week. Mm. Because like, uh, cause like you say, um, Yvonne's piece is, is sort of two halves. Um, and the first half kind of her a senior manager um well the senior manager at gateshead um dealing with dealing with the conditions in the in the pandemic um so i thought it was really interesting to contrast the issues that she raises there with what dominic Cummings was saying about the inner workings or not workings of the government so kind of reading the two pieces side by side you can really see how one gets to the other now it's, it's worth pointing out at the very beginning like like every single clinical leader or every single NHS leader I've spoken to over the last 15 months, they've all been at pains to stress um, how good staff have been. Um, she, she uses the term uh, Dunkirk spirit, um, which I think is an interesting, I think that's probably, it's a good term because you've got to remember Dunkirk came after a significant disaster um, where, where people did a, a good job following a huge failure of planning. Anyway, um, so she's very uh, praising of uh, of of staff, um, and like you said, the piece is um, is very candid, uh, and it's interesting watching kind of the very measured tones that um, CEOs normally use. Um, changing so like so this quote for example uh, after praising uh, staff and the response generally she says as a CEO there were a number of areas however that I found extremely challenging um, and as anyone who's been running the NHS for a while will know extremely challenging is um, is is management speak for like things that were awful <laughs> but were like a, a like a complete disaster for which there, there was no proper help or guidance um so one of the things she mentions uh was unachievable uh, targets announced through press conferences which sat uncomfortably 
uh, alongside reagent and equipment limitations. So she's talking uh, about the testing regime there, um, which she ended up in charge of for the region um, because uh, Gates had took on a bunch of extra uh, diagnostic stuff um, a few years back. So um, she's talking about the unachievable targets announced through press conferences. Um, this is this is the hundred thousand uh, targets um, thing that Hancock announced. Now, as was as was well reported at the time, um, the government missed that target, although they claimed they had hit that target um, and they had included lots of uh, lots of tests that had just been sent and hadn't been returned. So, kind of. Uh, a win in only the most semantic terms. Here's what Cummings says about that. So to contrast what someone in charge of it regionally says, unachievable targets announced through press conferences sat uncomfortably. You know, again, management speak. Um, Cummings says, in my opinion, disastrously, the Secretary of State had made, while the Prime Minister was on his near deathbed, the pledge to do 100,000 tests by the end of April. I'd like to say before I continue this quote, this is all quotes. Don't sort of like nod off for a second and think this is me saying this. This is Dominic <laughs> Cummings saying this um, about the Secretary of State, Matt Hancock. This was an incredibly stupid thing to do because we had already had that goal internally. Um, we had already had conversations 10 days earlier to say instead of cancelling testing, we should be ramping up testing. And it should not just be 100,000, we should be heading for a million tests a day and more. But that means building the kind of architecture and foundations to do this all properly. What then happened when I came back around the 13th was I started getting calls and number 10 were getting calls saying Hancock is interfering with the building of a test and trace system because he is telling everybody to do, uh, he's telling everyone what to do to maximize his chances of hitting his stupid target by the end of the month. So we had the government, half the government with me in number 10 calling around frantically saying, do not do what Hancock says, build the thing properly for the medium term. And we had Hancock calling them all saying, down tools on this, do this, hold test back so that I can hit my target. Now, in my opinion, he should have been fired for that thing alone. Uh, that itself meant that the whole of April was hugely disrupted by different parts of Whitehall, fundamentally trying to operate in different ways. Uh, completely because Hancock wanted to be able to go on TV and say, look at me and my 100k target. It was criminal, disgraceful behaviour that caused serious harm. Again, to emphasise, that's not me, Ben Clover, saying it was criminal, disgraceful behaviour. That's Dominic Cummings, uh, the the most senior advisor to the Prime Minister at that point. And that's, that's probably one of the areas that Yvonne Olmsten describes as finding extremely challenging. Um, Stuff that's that's um, more uh, more within a, a, a hospital chief exec's um, purview to control. She also mentions, and I'm, I'm quoting um, Yvonne here, a moral concern regarding care homes was frustrated by an inability to determine who was doing what. In the end, the pragmatism of local partnerships ensured that we worked together to provide a level of care, albeit later than we would have liked. The whole area of testing could be very contentious, with trust desperately trying to increase their capacity, sitting, sitting juxtaposition alongside the unfathomable development of Pillar 2, that's part of the testing, uh, and the apparently unlimited spend. Now, we were hearing this all over the country at this point uh, about uh, how care homes didn't have uh, the PPE, didn't have the tests, 
Um, we know care home staff died disproportionately large numbers uh, compared to everyone else. That's before we even get onto the releasing um, patients back into care homes, which although has been widely criticised in that um, in that committee and elsewhere, you know, was a good faith decision taken on that point. However, Cummings has um, quite devastating things to say about how that was organised. And it's worth pointing out, uh, the Department of Health and Social Care is the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, so should have been a lot better connected on care homes than it seems it was. So this is Cummings talking about uh, the release of hospital patients back to those care homes, something that you expect the Department of Health and Social Care to be more on top of. So Cummings is saying, I mean, I'm sure some people were tested, but obviously many, many people who should have been tested were not tested and then went back to care homes and then infected people. And then it spread like wildfire inside the care homes. Also, the care homes did not have the PPE that they needed to deal with it, and they didn't have the testing for the staff. So he had this cascading series of crises, like domino effect rippling out through the system. Um, it's worth pointing out um, at this point that when we were trying to report on all this at the time, uh, we we're finding it very, very difficult uh, to piece together exactly what was happening, like everyone was. Um, and in a way, I have some sympathy for the communications people that we spoke to at the time, who who we now discover, even if they'd wanted to give us a clear picture, were probably unable to because of the departments fighting each other uh, at the centre of government. Um, and that's before you even get onto the points that Sir Richard Lee brought up a couple of weeks ago about the uh, uh, very retentive communication strategy, uh, which which I'm sure we've discussed before. Anyway, um, I want to come on to another point of Yvonne's that she makes. Um, she says we had many debates as an exec team about what approach to take uh, with staff for non-compliance with PPE. Um, most of our breaches occurred as a result of staff taking breaks together or for social reasons, such as trying to give a send-off to a colleague who was retiring after 40 years. The human need to connect is strong and in any other circumstance we'd be encouraging it. We shied away from the threat of sanctions and sought to keep re-emphasizing the safety aspect through our comms. This is one of the things I was talking about, about a, uh, a local issue, something that's very much uh, under the control of regional teams or, or of the chief executive of the hospital. Um, and it's interesting because um, uh, it'll probably be something that, that CEOs maybe dis have discussed uh, amongst themselves is like, what are you doing about this? Um, about the issue of um, staff non-compliance with, with PPE, because like she says, there are completely understandable reasons uh, for this um, and kind of figures that the CQ, well, there's a couple of different figures about how much uh, COVID got spread in hospitals. Not all of the spread in hospitals is going to be from staff, but some of it will be. And the figures are between 9 and 21% um, according to different uh, different estimates the CQC have given in slightly different uh, but it's yeah it's worth pointing out that that approach uh, Yvonne's approach there uh, was not universal so we reported in August um, last year that Chelsea and Westminster FT who actually run uh, two large hospitals in London did go down the sanctions uh, line so they, they they wrote staff saying if you end up self-isolating um, if you're not having to self-isolate because you weren't wearing a mask or something like that, then we're just going to take that as as uh, annual leave or unpaid leave because um, that that's your fault. Um, similarly, 
um, uh, there was a chief exec who left shortly after sending a similar well not threatening measures but like an admonishing uh, email to staff saying you must take um, distancing and and, uh, and PPE compliance more seriously and then it, it some photos emerged uh, showing that it appeared she she had not done that herself on at least on at least one occasion. I think it's fair to say that like everyone was getting used to that stuff and these people were working incredibly hard um, and people would get the old thing wrong. But I, I thought that was an interesting point of contrast. Um, I just want to talking talking of PPE. Um, there has been a lot written uh, about PPE, but I think probably still not enough given it was a 15 billion area of spend that was kind of critical to patient and staff safety. Um, Yvonne mentions kind of just just how stressful just what a source of anxiety that was to staff and to the managers who have to potentially send them into dangerous situations um, without the proper PPE at points. Kind of um, everyone's piece is, is very um, compelling on that point. Um, so again, I want to I come back to what Cummings said last week um, about PPE uh, and about how, how the government tried to make sure it got to staff. Um, I'm going to quote Cummings a little bit of length here, but I hope I, I, I hope you think it's worth it. I, I do. Um, so he says, yeah, everything is connected. It goes back to the whole disaster over testing. We did not have enough testing. We did not have enough PPE. Uh, because we did not have enough PPE and enough testing, it, it was not provided to care homes. Like, I, I don't know if anyone is bringing, sorry, this is not Cummings quoting anyone. End quote. End, end, end <laughs> quote, right? I don't know if anyone is bringing law cases for, uh, for like deaths in service at the moment in the, in the care home sector, but if they are, that is a significant admission from someone at the heart of government um, that there was not enough testing, not enough PPE. Uh, and it wasn't provided to care homes. So, uh, your honour, my client obviously came to harm as a result of this. Anyway, back to Cummings' quote. The fundamental problem that you had in February, March and April was a legal structure with a whole bunch of horrific EU laws. Sorry, he is at this point talking about why it was difficult to get PPE, aside from the fact that at this point, everyone in the world wanted PPE. Um, I'll go back to the quote. And then he had a whole bunch of horrific Whitehall gold plating on top of that. Then you had a set of official who, officials who had only ever worked inside that system. Then you had this completely unprecedented crisis of people like me shouting, call the airlines, tell them we're taking their planes and flying to China, find the nearest air, airfield, throw the PPE in the back and fly in back now. There was no system for doing anything like that. Everyone was saying, can we do that? Is it legal? What happens if we do it? And then everyone starts suing us. End of quote. Um, Amusing as it is to imagine kind of Cummings suddenly hijacking procurement as if he's in the A-team uh, and just grabbing PPE, kind of that does seem to be what was necessary, like kind of lots of accounts that you read of the manufacturing um, situation in China and about how cutthroat it could be as the agents for different national governments competed to get hold of this stuff and people would apparently gazump one another literally on the airfield uh, to do this it means like it it was a crisis and we could uh you know that that sort of action was taken and that sort of inertia that he describes um is it is is a factor in what Yvonne described 
Um, anyway, let me come back to, to Mr. Cummings. He says, I blame myself for many, 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 many things in this whole crisis. But one thing I can say completely honestly is that on this, I said repeatedly from February, March, if we don't fire the Secretary of State and if we don't get the testing into someone else's hands, we are going to kill people and it is going to be a catastrophe. I was not the only one telling the Prime Minister that. I made lots and lots of mistakes, but I honestly don't think I could have been any more explicit with anybody at the time about this. And I actually went with the Cabinet Secretary to the Prime Minister directly. Remember that in April, we had this ter terrible pledge, which was hugely distorting the whole system. We also had constant, repeated lying about PPE. The Cabinet Secretary said to the Prime Minister in almost the first meeting when he came back, Prime Minister, the British system is not set up to deal with a Secretary of State who repeatedly lies in meetings. We can't operate like that. I'm just going to repeat that bit of quote. We also had constant, repeated lying about PPE. Um, so kind of if that is true, um, then no wonder the situation was so confused. No wonder Yvonne's staff and staff yeah. up and down the country uh, faced such anxiety. Um, mm. Kind of, it's it's kind of understandable. Um, I just want to go to a different point now because I feel I've I've talked about PPE a lot. Um, although it's just quickly worth pointing out that kind of roughly half the contractors that but we spent the 15 billion pounds on on uh, on PPE roughly half of them were kind of people that make PPE right the other half are sort of brokers who bought it from somewhere else and then had a markup on it um so that's half of the 15 billion spend roughly okay so that's like a 7.5 billion spend what was the of this kind of a speculator end of the suppliers? What was their markup? Well, we know from a court case um, in uh, in well from covering a supplier based in Miami uh, with a an employee in Spain, uh, but they went to a court case um, over the the guy in Spain's commission, which ended up being about twenty one million off a two hundred fifty million pound spend. So the markup we know from the supplier end could be something north of 20%. So 20% on a 7.5 billion spend is about 1.5 billion of pure markup from the speculator suppliers. So I think that 1.5 billion is a strong, a strong uh, argument for a windfall tax on suppliers who've done very well over the last, uh, but anyway, that's a different point. Uh, I want to come back to what I think was a um, a really interesting point Yvonne made, and this is in the second part of her piece, um, where at this point she's getting chemotherapy, and uh, like she puts very eloquently, is um, is experiencing services from the other end. Now, uh, I was really brought up by the end of this sentence, and I won't tell you about it, what it what the sentence is about, until. Um, until we get come to her, that bit of her quote, because I was surprised. So this is Yvonne Olmsten in her piece saying, I have witnessed the cruel, heartbreaking and unnecessary anxiety we are inflicting upon patients and carers at a time when they're at their most vulnerable through car parking charges. Yeah, that made me um, 
kind of sit up as well because I wasn't expecting yeah. that to be the second half of that sentence. It completely goes against, the, this is her quote again, it completely goes against the founding principle of the NHS being free at the point of use and I hope we can find a way to dispense with them all together. Um, mm. I find it really interesting car parking charges because it's it's mm. one of the real disconnects between people in the system kind of and be that all the way up to the government and treasury yeah. uh, and kind of like the actual public who it's like always in the I, I could be wrong in this but I, I think I'm right in saying one of the public's biggest complaints about uh, the NHS isn't um, kind of our, our our woeful rate of like early diagnosis compared to the rest of the rich world for cancer kind of it isn't about like the huge kind of um, backlog in elective treatment it's car parking because it's because it's so immediate to people yeah. and because we forget kind of probably kind of the, you know that the management tier of the NHS and everyone above it aren't all that bothered by it but if you are not at all well off then this is a significant um, and as and like like if I'm putting a piece kind of when when her husband who's not allowed to visit her um, like people up and down the country weren't allowed to visit people in hospitals because of the COVID rules um, like a brutal decision which she talks about much more eloquently than, than I will so I've left that one she says she becomes familiar with the other people um, kind of you, you get to recognize the other people just waiting in the car park so they can be as near as possible um, mm -hmm. now kind of like why doesn't anyone care about car parks it's the same reason like in the NHS uh, it's the same reason people don't really care about patient transport it's like it's about it's deeply unglamorous compared to the rest yeah. of the business of the and hospital and difficult to sort out <laughs> so. difficult to sort out and like kind of so Gateshead's uh, Gateshead Hospital's car park is run by its estates management um, company that mm. it has span out and kind of I don't know what what the profit margin is or anything but lots of lots of hospitals up and down the country over this past kind of 12 years of cost cutting and like previous five years of like let's introduce a bit more market has seen things like like car parking just um privatized essentially so so people mm -hmm. have gone gone to hospital trust and said hey rather than you have to spend like 300 grand a year managing your car park how about we give you like a hundred grand and then we'll manage it all for free and the hospital goes oh the hospital in like 2012 goes this sounds great we um we've now cut we've now made a saving of 300 grand and we've got some income coming in and then the company does what you know, companies do it seeks a profit um and then suddenly you're you know you're potentially you're applying the profit mo motive to people who are often some of the very poorest people in the country and who are at their very most vulnerable um, and it really adapts at the idea um, that the NHS is a, a, point, a thing free at the point of use. Anyway, um, what's happening with all of that? Uh, well, last week, um, our colleague Nick Catuno reported that the, the government is looking at scrapping free emergency parking for NHS staff. Like no word even about the patients, but just for NHS staff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's quite a time to do that. When, yeah. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and I think about. most people I spoke to during, you know, staff I've spoken to over the last year have said how massive it was that they could park for free um, yeah. and have saved so much money. Um, it's just, yeah, it's sort of, I read that story, I was sort of aghast. I mean, I mean, we knew it was kind of coming, um, but 
yeah it's imagine that kind of you're a you're a nurse or anyone else who works in a hospital kind of you might literally have seen colleagues die um you might you will have seen like two to three times maybe more the amount of people die as before kind of you might be a security guard or some other member of staff or a clinical staff member of staff who's had to turn away grieving families well not, but not sorry not even grieving families worried families of sick people who 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 will be desperate to see someone who might be the last time they ever see them um and you've probably got you know quite possibly the onset of ptsd um from from all the things you've seen and and heard and then, <laughs> and then the government's like uh, i'm not sure about this pay rise and the government's like uh, i think you're gonna have to pay for your parking again like Mm. I'm sure someone at the mm. Treasury could do the maths and go, this is, um, yeah, you could give them this one. Anyway. So, um, it sort of links to, I just, just one last thing for me, kind of throughout her piece, the, she keeps referring back to kind of morals and values. And that seems to be like a continuous thread throughout it. And I don't know, I think, I think the term moral injury, I've never heard it used so much in the last year. But this sort of, again, that, what you've just said, Ben, kind of ties into that again. It's like after everything everyone's been through, um, I'll still walk down past my local hospital and see a load of yellow parking tickets slapped on key worker cars <laughs> with signs in the windows. It's inhumane to the person that has to slap a fine on someone yeah. for that. Who yeah. it's someone who's walking back, having said goodbye to them for the last time, um, or or not having been allowed to do that. Kind of, I don't know. It's um. I can't remember who it was. Victor Hugo said about the justice system, kind of like that it's a huge machine that can't move without crushing someone. And the NHS is a huge system, but it, but it, uh, it is there to care for people, including its staff. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be impossible. It shouldn't be too tiny an issue for the people that make these decisions to grasp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it appears to be again and again and again on this. Um, yeah. Just quickly. Um, she does talk about like like all managers uh, I've spoken to, and I'm sure you guys have spoken to in the last 15 months about just how incredible um, oh. the staff cooperation and team working has been. Um, I know I mentioned that at the beginning, but uh, but there's a, a story a colleague Dave West wrote last week about um, the results of an NHS kind of staff survey, not the normal yearly staff survey, but saying. Uh, that, that sense of cooperation, which is really valuable, which means you can get loads of things done more efficiently than they had done ever before. Um, it was the thing people were most worried about, about losing um, things like that. And they might do if we enter a very long grinding for a backlog phase. And if steps aren't taken to kind of help the morale of people who, you know, who deserve statues. Anyway, um, yeah, that was it was a great piece and I recommend it was. It was a great piece. Yeah. And yeah, everyone if you haven't read it, you can find it on the hsj.co.uk website. It's a really it's a really remarkable read. Um but on that note, thanks both so much for joining this week. It's time to wrap it up. Um and also of course thanks to listeners. Just a reminder, the podcast is available every week on the HSJ website and across all main podcast channels, um, now including um, Audible and um, on your Amazon Alexa. Um, Don't forget to subscribe and do get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us talk about. We'll be back next week.